Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, October 17th, 2022. On the show today, news and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim continues the history of the 1999 redo of Epcot's Journey into Imagination, which I am forever referring to as the Curse of Tony Baxter. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that discovering a new species is great as a biologist, not so great as an astronaut. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going well. I, for some odd reason, Len, this brings to mind the Predator series, which I was wondering if you saw earlier this summer the prequel that debuted on Hulu, Prey? No, I, you know, I heard about it, but I, uh, what's it about? It's actually set... In 1719, in the Great Northern Plains, and it's a female Comanche warrior who is the first to encounter the Predator, so to speak, and really, really smart, reimagining the series, and of yeah, course, it being 2022, it of course tees up a sequel. <laughs> is it a film or is it a TV series? It's a film for Hulu. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but definitely worth checking out. And another way that Disney sort of kicked the tires of, okay, so we bought 20th Century Fox and we got this. What can we yeah. do with this IP? What do we do with this? Yeah. That's fantastic. That sounds uh, super interesting. All right, I'll check it out, I'll check it out uh, this weekend. Cool, cool. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Angela Hulez, Rob Trainer, Natalie Flores, and Thomas Moynihan. And longtime subscribers, Greg DeMichley. Hey, Greg. Uh, Michelle Schlesinger and M. Drummond. Jim, these are the last guests to have been shrunk by Wayne Zielinski in the final performance of Epcot's Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. Sadly, Disney put the unshrinking ray into storage before they could be brought back to full size. They say it's not so bad because one food and one snack is a week's worth of food, and they get to sleep in the living with the land farmhouse for free. True story. Uh, but that rooster, Len, constantly with <laughs> But that. the rooster. <laughs> <laughs> have, you told, have you told the rooster story on the air? We'll save that for another time if you haven't. Oh, we'll, we'll save it. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Quick reminder, Jim and I are doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World starting Friday, December 2nd, 2022. So check that out at Storybook Destinations. Also, I'm speaking at IAPA on November 18th. So get your tickets for that. All right, Jim, in the news, mm -hmm. Disney's announced a price increase for a bunch of things, starting with Genie Plus in both Disneyland and Walt Disney World, as well as variable pricing by day. Mm. So right now, the uh, Walt Disney World price range is $15 to $22 plus tax, depending on the day. And the Disneyland upper price range is $25. Let me just say first, that not unexpected, right? We saw that coming. No, but keeps you know, folding in with the Disney is getting I guess, the too expensive narrative, but... Go with what you know, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's the uh, it's the beginning of their fiscal year. They want to uh, capture as much of that increased revenue as possible. Um, also, individual lightning lane prices went up. Rise of the resistance is now up to $25 per person per day. Also increasing preferred parking and photo pass. And then Disneyland ticket prices also increased an average of 8 or 9%. I would expect the same thing for uh, Walt Disney World. And of course... Food and beverage prices went up uh, at both resorts as well. Mm -hmm. you know, speaking of Genie Plus, though, I got this interesting note from uh, Ryan, who listens to the show, who was recently at Walt Disney World. And he wrote in, he said this, I had some issues with our room at Bay Lake Tower. Mm -hmm. 
I mentioned it to the front desk and one of the issues was a glass door, which doesn't close correctly. So it could break mm -hmm. as a safety issue. We hadn't bought Genie Plus because because of touring plans, mm -hmm. but they gave us a free Genie Plus for the day and that was their make good. And Ryan says, I feel silly for not seeing that coming. Yeah. The interesting thing about it being a make good is it doesn't cost Disney anything <laughs> to hand it out, right? Yeah. I guess it's another arrow to place in the guest service quill. Yeah, I mean, you're going to say, now this is a $100 value. <laughs> there you go. There you can do go. that. All right. Also, Jim, in the, uh, this is more rumor than news, but uh, the rumor that I hear is that a beloved thing mm -hmm. might be returning to Disney's Hollywood Studios in the first week of November. That's all I can say about it right now. Mm -hmm. You can fill in the blanks if you want. And then uh, speaking of rumors, our friend Spiro mm -hmm. sent in this news article, which suggests that Disney Cruise Line mm -hmm. might be interested in buying the world's largest cruise ship. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? I have. It's one of these things where there's three and four different stories out there, which all yeah. seem to key off of the same piece of info. But please go on. All right. So um, the world's largest cruise ship is this 9,000 passenger thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, currently called the Global Dream, mm -hmm. and it was uh, built by Genting Hong Kong from a shipbuilder in uh, Germany. Mm -hmm. But the company Genting went bankrupt mm -hmm. before they could finish it. So this thing is like two billion dollars mm -hmm. to build, but they went bankrupt before they could uh, furnish the inside of it. So now it's just sitting in a shipyard in Germany, mm -hmm. and of course, their cruise companies are interested in it because they can buy it for pennies on the dollar, and it's not often that you get to buy a you know, $2 billion cruise ship for $200 million, for example. Mm -hmm. And again, you still have to outfit the staterooms and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but you've really saved a ton of money here. A couple of interesting rumors. One is mm -hmm. um, a website called Cruise Hive reported that Disney's buying it mm -hmm. and that that supposedly was announced by the, uh, the bankruptcy administrator, but they didn't give a transaction price. I have not seen anyone else confirm this, mm -hmm. so I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. But the other interesting thing about it is, is that the rumor is that Disney would use it to expand into the China market. Mm -hmm. This cruise ship was built for the Chinese market. Uh, and with 9,000 passengers, it's possible that Disney could use it as their first foray in there. And we know that they're already interested in that side of the world because they've moved the wonder now mm -hmm. to cruising in Australia and New Zealand. So this wouldn't be out of line. But 9,000 passengers, mm -hmm. Jim. I was just talking with somebody about the magic and the wonder. Typically, the life of a cruise ship is, is 25 years, right? Right. And then the initial cruise line typically keeps its cruise ships mm -hmm. for 25 years. And the magic and the wonder have gone through a number of refurbishments since mm -hmm. then. But yeah, 25 years is kind of the upper limit mm -hmm. for the first cruise line to own a ship. And after that, it gets sold off mm -hmm. to a secondary cruise line who will run it for like 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it'll go to a third owner and so on. And this is actually what happened with the original Love Boats, for those of you that are interested in, in that history. I mean, Princess Cruise Lines owned it for a while, mm -hmm. then they sold it off and it got sold off again. And eventually it was retired for scrap when it just got too old to maintain. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but we're, we're at the point now where once Disney gets its, if it does expand to a seven ship mm -hmm. fleet, you can start to think about retiring one, maybe two of those. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that Disney just keeps them running and takes them out of the American market and puts them in China, you know, for example. This seems to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get something like this for pennies on the dollar. And certainly yeah. with Disney eyeing the Chinese market the way it is. Yeah. The cruise line people always talk about the other ships as milk cartons. 
we designed ships, you know, those folks do yep. glorified milk cartons and a 9,000 passenger ship. That sounds like a gallon milk carton. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a magnum of milk. There we yeah. go. I mean, 9,000 passengers. Let me put this in perspective. The town that I lived in in North Carolina when I was there mm-hmm. had 12,000 people in it. Oof. And that's 9,000 passengers. Don't forget the, the crew mm-hmm. that you have to have oh, to support 9,000. So you're probably looking at a ship that holds the same number of people as the town that I last lived in in North Carolina. That's a lot. That's a lot of, of people. people. I mean, I've been on I've been on mm-hmm. some of the bigger Royal Caribbean ships which handle like 5,000 mm-hmm. people. And I thought that was massive because when you figure the crew that goes in that that's, you know, mm-hmm. basically half again as many as many crew, but man, 9,000 is just a lot. But the thing the thing I'm interested in here is if you look at the Chinese market, mm-hmm. the cruise lines that do best there mm-hmm. all have gambling. They all have casinos on the ship. Oh. And, and this, this ship does too. The ship has a casino as well. Mm-hmm. Disney does not do gambling, famously, on its cruise ships. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that Disney can fail a 9,000 passenger ship in China without gambling mm-hmm. on a regular basis. That's a lot of people. Let's remember Mr. Chapek has floated at least once or twice the notion of ESPN branching into gambling so yeah and there's some there's some interesting uh, intellectual property filings that they've done recently that seem to indicate they're moving in that direction sooner rather than later we'll mm-hmm. talk about it on another show but yeah. yes it that i could see that like if they enter the u.s market for gambling mm-hmm. then it's a cover to do it in china mm-hmm. or vice versa mm-hmm. i think it's i think it'd be more acceptable if they did it in the u.s first and then did it in china rather than china and then the u.s but that's just me i could be wrong okay okay All right, uh, we have time for a quick survey and listener question segment. In terms of surveys, I'm still sorting through new surveys that we've got over the past week. Mm -hmm. I do want to point out, Jim, though, that after last week's show Mm -hmm. where we talked about a new dining survey Disney's been sending out, Mm -hmm. I got emails from more than one person who works in food and bev at both Disney and Universal saying like, along the lines of, hey, can you send me a copy of that survey? (laughs) Wow. So apparently apparently it was news to a bunch of people, not just us. So that's interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, uh, the sentiment that I got out of those emails was like, you know, it would be great if we knew now what they're going to rate us on in the next six months. <laughs> we can start preparing for this. True. So that was good. True. All right. Uh, a couple of listener questions. Here's one from Tom. He says, I've been told I'm crazy for making this plan, but my kid's number one priority uh, is to hit Cape May Cafe character breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a connoisseur of an optimized Walt Disney World visit, I'm unwilling to give up rope shop morning on a two-day trip. So I've grabbed an 1110 reservation and aim to leave the dolphin solo with a three-year-old and a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Godspeed, jungling. Mm-hmm. And rope drop frozen, then hit future world dark ride trifecta of Spaceship Earth and Nemo and Imagination, and then score a lightning lane on Remy for the way out. It certainly assumes no hiccups along the way. The Lines app says I'm good to go. Frankly, the biggest risk is my three-year-old daughter's willingness to get in the stroller, but I'm pretty sure a casual mention mm-hmm. of how we'll miss Minnie's Beach House buffet will mitigate this. Mm-hmm. This seems perfect to me. Am I nuts? Also, thoughts on a strategy to get a mid-morning Remy. Mm-hmm. The move out of individual lightning lane really kneecapped me here. It seems that 7 a.m. is a crapshoot. You'd think that a blue umbrella friend would adjust a lightning lane time for me to avoid a dining conflict. Uh, I appreciate if you've gotten this far and all the best, Tom. Yeah, so here's the issue mm-hmm. with Lightning Lane right now. Disney's made a number of adjustments to hide the fact that the time that you see on the initial offer screen 
may not be the time that you actually get. Right. And we've talked about this on a previous show. Mm -hmm. It comes down to the fact that Disney implemented Genie Plus as a shopping cart app, Mm -hmm. but they don't place your specific reservation time in the cart until you've actually paid for it. And that allows someone else to grab that reservation time Mm -hmm. while you're in the process of paying for it. Disney's not going to change that because that would require a rewrite of the entire back end. Mm-hmm. And frankly, they're willing to put up with people complaining about it because it would cost money to fix it otherwise. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, Tom, the first thing to do is get a blue umbrella friend and say, I got this one reservation, but when I went to buy it, it showed me another one. Mm-hmm. And the blue umbrella people will be completely familiar mm-hmm. with that scenario and then ask them if you can fix it because now it conflicts with a dining time that you have. I would absolutely do that. In terms of everything else, it's been a while since I've had a three-year-old and a six-year-old uh, together. It's early enough that if the kids are up, I think you can do it. And you've only got a limited number of things to do here, right? Mm-hmm. A couple of attractions, Spaceship Birth, Neo, Imagination, especially if your daughter likes Imagination. I think that's uh, that's cool. Yeah, I think it's doable, but I would um, I would find one of those uh, blue um- umbrella people oh, yeah. and work with that. And speaking of that, Jim, mm-hmm. you and I were in the parks last week. Mm-hmm. And was it surprising to you how many of those guest experience pop-up umbrella stands there were in the parks. Because I remember you and I were were way back in the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. by the intersection of Storybook Circus and that path that goes along towards Under the Sea. Mm-hmm. And they had a guest experience team back there. Yeah. And it was busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, what, what is going so wrong mm-hmm. that you are in the farthest outreaches of the park and have a guest experience team here? God love those people. They have a black belt when it comes to using an iPad and trying to sort things out. But the fact that they're so ubiquitous around the resort these days just says a lot. There's more now than there were when all this stuff first came out, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, I get that that's Disney's play. You flood the zone, but geez. Speaking of amazing, Jim, Mm -hmm. we haven't talked about your experience getting into the parks last week. So let let me let me set this up for okay. our listeners. So Jim Jim Hill and I were in town with Jim Scholl, and I think we've talked about Jim Scholl on the show before. But uh, he led Walt Disney Imagineering's creative department for many years. In fact, I believe his former title was what head of creative at Walt Disney Imagineering, mm-hmm. right, and he retired in December of 2020. Mm-hmm. And Jim listened to the show mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. But appreciated it. And so we've had a chance to tour the parks with Jim Scholl. And Jim Scholl was in town to give a talk mm-hmm. at a conference, same conference I was talking at last weekend. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go into the parks Monday and Tuesday of last week. And I we agreed to, uh, to meet at the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. around 2 o'clock uh, in the afternoon on Monday. And I bopped into the park and I got there about 1.30. Mm-hmm. And I got a text from you guys at 1.45 because I think you were driving Jim over. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I get a text from you guys about 145 saying, hey, we're about to, to enter the park. Mm. And then nothing. <laughs> and so, Jim, why don't you relay what happened as you arrived at the Magic Kingdom? So Jim was using his main gate to get us into the park. And he has a life because he worked for Imagineering for so long, he is basically a lifetime pla- pass to get into the park. There parks. we go. There we go. And okay. in all previous times, you just slash your main gate and this is my guest and you walk straight in. We got off the tram and went through security and just stopped to talk for a moment with two plaids who were, you know, there with their little iPads and, and that sort of thing. 
and explained mm-hmm. what we we're going to do. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. First of all, the Magic Kingdom is booked solid till, yeah. I want to say, October 16th. And this would have been the 6th? But it was one forty-five, and you could park up at 2 o'clock. This is where it gets almost Fellini-esque. Okay, so you can take your pass, but you have to tap in to Epcot before you can go into the Magic Kingdom. And Jim Schul and I are like, wait a minute, you're telling us. And by this point, it is like... It's past 2 o'clock. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm texting you guys at like 2.15, like, uh, you know, getting, getting a little hot over here in Adventureland. Where are you guys? Yeah. And they were so apologetic. The effect of there is nothing we can do. You literally have to yeah. go up here, get on the monorail, go over to Epcot, go through security, go to the entrance of the park, tap in there, and then yeah. walk back to the monorail station, get on the monorail, go back to the TTC, transfer to a monorail to the Magic Kingdom. Then, and only then, were we allowed to enter the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, I think Jim Shull had mentioned that he actually tried to scan Mm -hmm. his pass. Mm -hmm. And when it didn't work, the cast member that was helping you guys Mm -hmm. went through literally nine different things that they've been trained to do Mm -hmm. to resolve that particular issue to get him into the park. And he was like... They tried one through nine, and it didn't work. And after that mm-hmm. was where they came up with, okay, we know the one thing that will work mm-hmm. would, would be telling you to get on a monorail, go, go to Epcot. And so you you go to Epcot, mm-hmm. and you find a cast member there. And what, is he, what do they say? They instantly knew what we were doing, that they <laughs> – that so it's many people have been me. forced. It happens so often. They're like, oh, yeah, aisle three. Yeah, come in here and then literally point it, go out that exit and get back on the monorail and go over to the Magic Kingdom. And do you remember In Search of Excellence, the Thomas J. Peters and the Robert H. Waterman book from the, the 2000s? Yeah. It was a required reading for anybody in uh, you know in business. Yeah, I mean, that. it just literally, subtitle of the book was Lessons from America's Best Run Companies. And this yeah. book... Goes out of its way to talk about the Walt Disney Company and, yeah, and yeah. you know praising it for its efficiency and guest recovery, and yeah. that's what I couldn't help but think when I was on the monorail making my trips over to Epcot. <laughs> that this is still the Walt Disney Company. This is still yeah. what happened. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there are the, st- the beautiful part about this is like you guys spent twenty minutes trying to get through the tap styles mm-hmm. and then. 20 minutes going to Epcot and 20 minutes coming back. And the entire time mm-hmm. I am texting Jim Scholl mm-hmm. saying, what's it like being a guest? Yeah. How do you, how do you like this? Yeah. <laughs> and there was some profanity involved too. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but, <laughs> from me to him, Jim was, Jim was a perfect gentleman. I, I, yeah. In fact, I remember Jim Scholl saying this is it, it is so clear that executives and park managers are not wearing the shoes of the guest anymore because no, any executive at, at Disney who had to deal with this would shut down this <laughs> policy overnight. Okay, so you guys do this. Mm-hmm. And the next day, we're going to meet in the morning mm-hmm. at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Yep. And so we agree to meet at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And I show up at 9.30. And you text like at 9.30 mm-hmm. and say, we've pulled in. We're walking up to the entrance now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll see you in an hour, yeah. being the smartest that I am. Tell them what happened. <laughs> Wait, 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 sorry. Let me preface this by saying, when you got into the Magic Kingdom, Mm -hmm. the cast member said, okay, your problem is resolved. This won't happen again. Dear listeners, you can see where we're going here. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) At this time, we had a park reservation. Jim had done it the Mm -hmm. previous evening. He had his main gate. He had his guest pass. 
And yeah. we got to the tap-in point, and a cast member there like, oh, I'm so sorry, we've got to send you over to guest relations. This, you know. And <laughs> so we we spend 20 minutes there. We get a, a lovely employee there, Barry, who drills down into the metadata and figures out what's yeah. going on and personally rewrites the passes. Yeah, at this point, he's actually manipulating the database manually he, to let you in. He's writing he's writing SQL code. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, Barry, Barry knows how to get things done. Okay, so it's like hands, you know, the main gate back to Jim, hands me my pass, like I go over to the gate, and we get there again, and a different cast member now, but it's the same thing. It still doesn't work. And at the point they begin to tell us to go back out to guest relations, it's like, oh, wait a minute. We were- <laughs> and this, this is where Jim Scholl mm-hmm. was done. <laughs> yeah. Because you're texting me. Mm-hmm. And by this time, it's like 10, 15, 45 minutes have gone by. Yeah. And Jim Scholl starts saying, like, does this happen? Like, what's your process yeah. for this? Because now, you know, I've tried to get in the parks for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And he said that they... They handed you guys like a comment card? Yes. And and Jim flat out asked, can I go inside to the guest relations desk and talk with the folks? They were like, no, use this email address to contact Disney. I mean, Disney seems to pride itself on the fact that, you know, hey, we're getting fewer guest complaints with this yeah. new policy. It's like, well, yes, because you've made it impossible for people to, file a to actually file a complaint. Yeah. So Shul's point was that if you hand somebody a business card or a piece of paper that says, we can't take your complaint now, but when you get home, mm-hmm. use this piece of paper, follow the instructions on it to file a complaint. Mm-hmm. No one's going to have that piece of paper no. by the time they go home. No. So there's no way for those complaints to be registered, mm-hmm. which means if they don't exist in a system, they're never going to bubble up to leadership. Mm-hmm. And now leadership thinks it's not a problem. Yeah. And the entire time I'm texting Shul like, it's like being a guest, big boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he took it very well. And, and now, you know, the very next morning. our Oh, God, you went back? We, we went to Animal <laughs> Sorry, I got home. <laughs> Oh, dear, dear God. This is our third day of doing this. And okay, we have our reservation. You just line up for the spanking, like right up front. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, we have all the work that Barry's done. So we know the right Kate, we know the right card. And even there, yeah. we end up with a 15 minute delay because it's like, okay, no, I'm sorry. You're going to have to talk with guest relations again. And we went from an hour plus on the first day to 45 yeah. minutes on the second day minutes. to just a 15 minute long delay to get into animal kingdom. It's like, Ooh, if we hung in here, we could get this, you know, tomorrow we could get this down to five. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the good thing is, is that over three days, you only spent two hours yeah, trying to get no park. Yeah, but I, I think as you pointed out, that's two hours. We weren't buying merch. That's two hours when we yeah. weren't buying $6 sodas. Buying food, right, yeah. From Disney's point of view of get them indoors and I, I can't be buying a lightning lane. This is not playing into Disney's favor. More to the point, the very fact of the reaction of that Epcot employee, no, go over there, get it right, and go right up on the monorail. This is happening to a lot of people and they're yeah, going Yeah, if you've home. got an informal process in place to fix systematic problems, yeah. something has gone terribly wrong mm-hmm. Many things have gone terribly wrong for a very long time. And I guarantee you that upper management does not know about this process mm-hmm. or that to get to that point, nine things have had to have failed to be fixed. Evidently, they are talking about dropping the two o'clock park hopping thing. And supposedly, that's what Disney now believes is the problem. You know, it's like 
okay, that's really annoying people. Let's get rid of that. And I've only got one source on this. I'm trying to get a second yeah. source on it, but that'll be interesting if, as we head into the fall gives way to the winter, whether or not that actually happens. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that was a uh, that was a great story. Yeah, and, yeah. and to be to be fair, Jim Shul never lost his temper, and uh, you know he he framed everything, mm-hmm. every single thing. When he talked to cast members, mm-hmm. he framed it not as I'm having this problem. Mm-hmm. He framed it as when guests have this problem, mm-hmm. w- what do you think the impact is? Mm-hmm. He looks at things from a guest perspective. Oh no, and that's no, embedded absolutely. in him. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. So give him credit for that. Yeah. Also, it was it was super cool to walk around with Jim too. Uh, so many different levels. The yeah. stories. I spend entirely too much time going to press events, so I'm in the bubble. You just walk straight into the park. You never deal with any issues. And it was such an eye opener to be a guest for a day. Yeah. And the fact that I wasn't here on vacation. With this was a, a you know a working trip with you and Jim. So you know it wasn't a question of oh my god my vacation is being impacted. No, but it, but his point was like imagine if I was a real guest mm-hmm. and Magic Kingdom was the first park that I visited during my vacation and it took an hour to get in. Yeah. Like what is that? What mood does that put me in for the rest of my trip? No, 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 absolutely. Because then every minor inconvenience after that is amplified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a valid point. I mean, you have to look at it from a regular guest perspective. Absolutely, but at the same time, just want to praise the two ladies we met at the TTC. Likewise, Barry. I mean. Total Disney pros who were doing what they could, but you just yeah. got the sense you, you that... You can't argue with a computer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, they, they were themselves hamstrung by the system that Disney now has in place. And it just sort of like, I'm just trying at this point to do right by the guests. And it's like, yeah. and, and Disney's own tech is standing in the way. Yeah. But it was a, it was an eye-opening experience, Absolutely. and I'm glad. Uh, I'm, Absolutely, I, I'm sorry it happened to you guys. I'm glad Jim Shul got to see it though, because it's he still has some uh, still has some friends in the company. It's glad to have it in the rearview mirror. Rearview mirror, definitely an eye opener. Yeah, the other thing I'll say uh, before we go on is, um, so Jim designed Rock and Roller Coaster, mm-hmm. and then to walk around the queue, mm-hmm. the plaza area, and then go on Rock and Roller Coaster and have Jim point out design elements that I've literally never seen before mm-hmm. or noticed before in that ride mm-hmm. was super, super fun. So a lot of great stories on that. And we're going to we're gonna talk about that on an upcoming show. Yeah, we are. There we are. All right. Uh, one last uh, listener email. This one's from Derek. He says, uh, Disney seems to have painted themselves into a corner with the Galaxy's Edge land being set in the era of the sequel trilogy. But I think I've come up with a solution that will be interesting to everyone who listens to the show. What if each part of the land went through the different eras? So starting from Toy Story Land, the area from the Droid Depot to Ogus Cantina could be the prequel era. The First Order TIE Fighter would need to be moved, replaced maybe with a pod racer, and the simple rename of First Order Cargo. The arch next to the cantina transitions you into the original era, including the Millennium Falcon. This area would go right up to Ronto's Roasters and include the market. In Smuggler's Run, the Falcon is loaned to Hondo by Chewie, so I suppose if it was moved to another era, it doesn't specify that Han is no longer around, so we're okay there. Finally, rounding the corner through the trees would transition you to the sequel era with its X-Wing, Resistance Supply, and of course, Rise of the Resistance. These are just the ramblings of an old Star Wars fan that would love to see a wider variety of Star Wars represented, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts. I mean, frankly, Jim, I love this idea. This is not a terrible idea. No. The Obi-Wan Kenobi limited series that was just on Disney+, Plus, they've been keying in on the kids who grew up with the prequels, that, that they were yeah. their Star Wars films, 
these are now adults with their own uh, children. So they love. <laughs> the first time, the first time I actually encountered someone my daughter's age, Hannah's age, mm-hmm. who said that they liked the prequels more, <laughs> I thought they were gaslighting me. Honest to God, <laughs> I was like, no, but seriously. And they're like, no, really, those are those are that's the first movie I saw, and I fell in love with it. Yeah, like you like the prequels, mm-hmm. and. It's a generational thing, Jim. It's like, do you still eat Tide Pods? Like, is that is that what this is? <laughs> <laughs> well, the other thing, though, if we take the period we are now and jump ahead 15 years, mm-hmm. that means the kids who grew up with the new films, the ones built around Ray and Poe and, and Finn, they're going to want to see those things in the park. So it, it might actually... Huh behoove Disney. I know there is a lot of pressure, for example, to redo the Millennium Falcon ride to do something that people actually want to see other than something based on Solo. But those films mean something to that audience and to to keep that in place for them. So, Derek, this is not a bad idea. The other thing I love about this idea is that there's enough visual separation Mm -hmm. between the areas that Derek outlined Mm -hmm. where you could actually make that transition and make it realistic. Like, you know how like in, in the Magic Kingdom, mm-hmm. when you're going from Adventureland to Frontierland, there's that archway mm-hmm. that you pass through that essentially serves as the, it's not the actual end of Adventureland, but it's the visual signal that you are leaving mm-hmm. Adventureland. I know the actual border is a little bit farther along, but they have those sort of visual cues mm-hmm. already in place. They do. To Derek's point. They you do. can do this. Yeah, okay. Not a, not a bad idea. I'm on board, Derek. I'm on, I'm on board. I, I, just one quick follow-up question here. Can one of our West Coast listeners let us know where Boba Fett and Fennec Shand set up shop in, in the West Coast oh, version yeah, yeah. of Galaxy's Edge? Yeah, let us know. That supposedly in November, Mando and Grogu are going to turn up in that park as well. And I'm just fascinated as to where they would <laughs> land in the the physicality of land, you know, where do these folks, you know, make their niche? Yeah. I cannot wait to see what those lines are like. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of the disastrous first redo of Epcot's journey into imagination, which happened around this time back in 1999. We'll be right back. Okay, if you listen to this podcast, then you already know I do an awful lot of research in order to prep the stories that I share here, which means that I have subscriptions to all sorts of newspapers and magazines from which I then cull the info that I need to write these stories. The downside is I often forget to cancel these subscriptions after I've gotten the info that I need, which made for a really rude awakening every month when that automatic subscription fee then came in. And I'd once again think, and no, I really got to get around to canceling that subscription. That's why I love Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill. Rocket Money is this great app that I use that helps me keep track of all of my expenses. And because of it, I'm no longer wasting money on subscriptions I'm no longer using. And these savings can be considerable, folks. Did you know that while most Americans think that they're only spending around $80 a month on subscriptions, that total is actually a lot closer to $200 plus. And the beauty part of Rocket Money is that this app shows all of your subscriptions in one place and then cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know that you were paying for, or worse, point out subscriptions that you're being double-charged for. Nancy and I had a situation like that just recently with the Orlando Sentinel. And to cancel a subscription, all you have to do is press cancel, and Rocket Money then takes care of the rest. 
So get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. Seriously, it can save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. All right, Jim, this is part two of this series because on last week's show, we talked about how when Journey to Imagination opened, it was sponsored by the Kodak Company. Um, but as time went on and digital cameras came into play, they were stuck in the wet film business and had started to fall on hard times. In fact, when it came time for Kodak to pay for the redo of Journey into Imagination, they came back and said, if you look at the trends or uh, you know things don't look great for our company, we're laying off thousands of people, we, can't, we simply cannot afford to pay the money it takes to update this ride at this time. People would revolt. So what happened next? Not only did Kodak say, we can't pay for the redo, you have to lower what we pay for the annual maintenance and upkeep of the journey into Imagination Pavilion. And so right from the get-go, the Imagineers are behind the eight ball. And so this is the triage situation. It's like, okay, this is what the sponsor has asked us to do. How do we handle this? And so in the case of Journey into Imagination, they started out by targeting the most expensive to maintain moment in the in the original Journey into Imagination ride, which was that three minute long scene where the Dreamfinder, when he's aboard his flying machine and out collecting mm-hmm. things that will spark our imagination, first introduces the audience to to Figment. So this is where you're in a sort of a round room. Mm-hmm. You've got this magnificent mm-hmm. prop, and it's sort of like a steampunk balloon. Mm-hmm being driven by the Dreamfinder, and Figment is there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like a tuba horn at the front yep. where you can see mm-hmm. you know, words representing concepts mm-hmm. and pictures going into the tuba horn, and it basically generates imagination mm-hmm. on it. It was kind of one of the core experiences of the ride. Oh, no, no, absolutely. And more to the point, I mean, it was an engineering marvel. I mean, think about it. It's a yeah. three-minute long scene. First of all, there were five identical sets of flying machines, figments, and dream really? Yeah. This is kind of a spin on the circle vision idea. You you entered the room and you were followed by three other Omnimover cars, which then okay. turned, in fact, the whole storytelling coaster thing where the, the car moves for a Guardian's Cosmic Rewind, same thing here. Your Omnimover rotates to face the Dreamfinder, who's on his flying ship with Figment. And so in order to get that three-minute-long scene, you're in a rotating room with the set piece. But coming right behind you in the next four set of cars, same thing. There's a wall separating your show scene from the identical Dreamfinder on his flying ship with Figment. And four get loaded in, and that starts that show scene. And once you finished your rotation and you got the whole conceit of the ride set up, that's when your your ride vehicle sort of pivoted to a straight-ahead orientation and then entered the dream port, which is our first real standing set of the attraction. That introductory scene, which, by the way, in-house at Imagineering was known as the Flight to the Imagination, was the most expensive one to maintain. It had the most moving parts, the most animatronics. I mean, think about it. Five Dreamfinders, five Figments. Also, you were talking about the words and the concept, huge number of effects projectors. And the Imagineers could basically lower the cost of maintaining Journey into Imagination by nearly half 
its annual cost by eliminating this one sequence out of uh, uh, the future world attraction. So that's exactly okay. what they did. Still, <laughs> it's like saying, well, you know what? The most expensive part of a football game, mm-hmm. of putting on a football game, is the players. Yep. So we're going to get rid of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, what's, well, what's step two in this master plan? <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> once again, we revisit the players because <laughs> the Imagineers then go through the rest of the future pavilion and pull out every other Dreamfinder and Figment animatronic because these AA figures, while they're not nearly as complex as the ones used in the flight to imagination scene, yeah. are still expensive to maintain, at least on an annual basis. And and and, and Codex interested in the maintenance budget, right? Yeah, this is the, yeah. the, the okay. All right, yeah. fair. All right. And since there's far less now for Epcot center visitors to see from their Romney movers, they roll along the ride track. Well, the imaginers just simplify the route. Yeah, you don't you don't need to go into the the room with the uh, with the big balloon because there's nothing to see there. Yeah. Okay. So they eliminate almost a third of the ride track that used to travel along for the, Holy the, the original version of Journey into Imagination, and all of this removal of animatronic and simplifying of the track route. It costs money, Len. Because you've got to you got to redo the track. Yeah, in fact, it's a lot more money than the imaginers had originally budgeted for this part of the project, <sighs> which meant. There's now far less money for new show scenes. Oof. So remember the original Journey to Imagination thing. You had these huge, brightly lit rooms, you know, like that yeah. giant Pelage painting with the, the Dreamfinders with his giant painting tool and all that. Yep. Because there's now no money, the attraction basically comes 10 tiny, darkly lit rooms. And when it's dark, you can't see how badly the budget got cut, which people who've ridden on Countdown to Extinction or Dinosaur the Ride understand this concept very clearly. It's like a journey into Morrissey's imagination. Like, oh, God, can someone put a light on in here? <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> all right, go ahead. <laughs> and so now, to better fit in with the overall science and technology aspect of Future World, new storyline for journey into your imagination. Please note that the, the newest version of the name because now that Figment and Dreamfinder are gone, the guest is now the star of this future world attraction, that everything they see and hear as the guests travel along the ride track is supposedly happening to them in real time. And only them, right? Only them. Okay. Okay, so the guests get scanned using a new device, the Imagination Scanner, and when they're scanned, guests are are initially told, wow, there's not much going on upstairs. (laughs) Just a quick note, Len. (laughs) We've we've done a quick scan for your brain of your brain and we found nothing. <laughs> Not for nothing God. that that people got a bad taste in their mouth from this version yeah. of Journey into yeah. Imagination. When you insult guests in the first thirty seconds of the ride, it's kind of hard to come back from that. Yeah, where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah. but anyway, so the guests now after they're scanned, they go through what the Imagineers called a series of perceptual exercises, that, that scenes that were supposed to, in theory, jumpstart your imagination. Okay. All right. All right. So these scenes then lean heavily into Imagineering's decades in the making bag o tricks. We right. have things like the, uh, 3D sound. We have the, the sure. train scene to optical illusions that were previously considered for the Haunted Mansion and then discarded, like the, the butterfly in the cage and the fish okay. swimming outside of its tank. And... The Imagineers knew, for lack of a better term, that the tiny budget they were working with when it came to all these new show scenes. In fact, I'm stealing this phrase from, from Jim Scholl. It's It was like trying to butter an entire loaf of bread 
with a single pat of butter. You know, it's just, yeah. it's not going to work. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. But they did have an ace up their sleeve. They, and what they were going to do was they were going to get a celebrity to serve as the host of this revamped Future World attraction. And that celebrity was Robin Williams. Who could probably save a ride by himself. Like if anyone can do it. That was the thinking. Yeah. So here's okay. the concept. Disney's Flubber, the reimagining of, of the studio's absent-minded professor and son of Flubber, science-based comedies from the 1960s, had just been released in theaters in December of 97. And in that movie, Robin Williams played Philip Brainard, which is supposed to be updated version of the character Fred McMurray originally played in Absent mm -hmm. Professor and Son of Flubber, though he was called Ned Brainerd, not Philip, so I, I don't know what the deal is. Conceit of Journey into Your Imagination is just like with Wayne Zielinski over at the Honey, I Shrunk, the audience 3D movie. Uh, Philip Brainerd has just been named the inventor of the year, which now means that he is the, the scientist in residence at the oh, Imagination okay. Institute. And storyline of the new show is that Philip Brainerd is supposed to be telling folks who were visiting the Imagination Institute during its annual open house that anyone could do what he did. Uh, can it become a great inventor? Just means harnessing the power of your imagination. And so WDIG's hope was that William Starpower, not to mention his ability to improve any script with wild ad-libs, yeah. would then make Journey into Your Imagination seem like a far better show than it actually was. Sure. The script uh, the script and the audio can do wonders for anything. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, fair, yeah, yeah. fair. Yeah. And, and, and if you remember the original Q space for Journey into Imagination, this Flubber-based story actually was sort of set up. I mean, as guests move to the Q, you, you pass some of Philip Brainerd's inventions, including Weebo, the, the hovering right. robotic assistant, which, by the way, was, was voiced by Jody Benson, the, the voice of Little Mermaid. Only one problem, Lane. The Imagineers show Robin Williams all of their storyboards and models for Journey into Your Imagination, and he then passes on the project. Oof. He's like, you guys have seen Ishtar, right? <laughs> <laughs> let me let me make an analogy for you here. Yeah. Robin Williams looks at the script and says, even I can't save this. Yeah. You've got to be. Yeah. That's got to be a bad day at the office. When Flubber came out, in, again, in December of 97, it didn't exactly set the box office on fire. I mean, they, they heard already, of course, been talks about, ooh, we're going to do sequels. and But it only makes like a 190-some-odd worldwide. So it, it didn't exactly connect with the audiences. And the thinking was that Williams just wasn't all that eager to reprise a role that he got in kind of rotten reviews for. And yeah, oh, but fair. the other fact here is that, you know, Williams could obviously see that this version of this future world pavilion was going to compare poorly to the original Journey into Imagination ride. And so okay. he politely declines the opportunity to host this thing. And so, so the Imagineers now lack a host for Journey into Your Imagination. So uh, they go for a, a piece of low-hanging fruit. And Eric Idle of Monty Python fame, he was a last-minute replacement for the actor who was originally supposed to play the president of the Imagination Institute in the Honey, I Shrunk, the, the Audience 4D movie. I'm, I'm still trying to track down who D Disney originally cast in that role. So, okay. But WDI reverts to form. When, when Rob Williams refused to host a Journey into Your Imagination, they recruit Idol to, to play the attraction's host. And the justification at the time was, well, okay, this creates better story continuity between Honey, I Shrunk, the Audience, and Journey into Your, your Imagination. I mean, we, we have the same comic actor appearing in both shows. So again, you know, in theory, it's story cohesion, but there's just no getting around 
the fact that journey into your imagination still seemed like a considerable step down from the original right. journey into imagination ride. You know, there are no huge elaborate sets. There's no animatronic figures. We've lost our catchy Sherman Brothers song. No, less figment. Yeah. And there were Imagineers at this point who were literally said, you don't get this. Fans are going to revolt. And and they knew of what they spoke. Because remember, Len, fall of 98 was when the Save Mr. Toad's Wild Ride thing happened. And Oh, yeah. This is where the uh, the power of the internet exposed yeah. itself to uh, to Disney management. And, and Disney had never, ever encountered anything about this. You know, the notion that fans would rise up. It's like, we're, we're giving you a Winnie the Pooh ride. What do you mean you're, you're upset about Mr. Toad? And they'd never experienced anything like this from Disney theme park yeah. fans. So Walt Disney World management you know, just poo-pooed these Imagineers' concerns. They're like, look... Millennium Celebration starts October of 99. We got the Millennium Village. We got Reflections of Earth out on Showcase Lagoon. We got the Tapestry of Nation Parade, the, the giant Mickey sorcerer thing over Spaceship Earth. So much new stuff. Who's going to notice or even care that we've changed Epcot's journey into imagination, Ryan? <laughs> Other than every single person who goes on this ride. <laughs> How many millions of them can there be? <sighs> Well, they found out rather quickly, Len. October 1st, 1999, Journey into Your Imagination opens and almost immediately starts getting terrible reviews. I mean, fans would get off the thing and hike straight over to Guest Relation and lodge complaints about, you know, the removal of Dreamfinder and Figment. And, yeah. and mind you, the Imagineers tried to sort of, you know, it's like, okay, they're going to miss Figment. So there was a little teeny tiny moment in the pre-show where they have these monitors with Eric Idle where, where Figment yeah. shows up in a voiceless cameo for a second. Like that's going to be enough. Yeah. yeah uh, there was kind of a connect the dots thing that recreated Figment midway through the ride. And then at the very end of the attraction, because clearly somebody didn't understand what they were doing, they had Eric Idle you know, congratulations, you're so imaginative, you're so creative. and But interspersing with Eric Idle's voice, they put in clips of Billy Barty, who was the original voice of Figment, and yeah. just chunks of dialogue from the original ride that sort of backed that center, like, wow, you know, you're doing great, and stuff like that. And it was like, it's like, excuse me, is is that a wound? Can I rub some salt in it? <laughs> Do you miss Figment? Because here, you can hear his voice, but you can never see him. There were so many complaints so quickly that Eisner himself, on his very next trip to Florida, makes a special trip over to Journey into your imagination to experience... To see, to see what all the fuss is about. Oh, yeah. And Michael got off the thing and didn't mince words. It's like, guys, this is terrible. You need to fix this. But that said, Len... Because Epcot had so few rides then and today that the Imagineers literally had to wait till the end of Walt Disney World's Millennium Celebration before they could even start to talk about. Oh, so it would they would have they would have closed it sooner if it wasn't for the Millennium oh, Celebration? Yeah. Oh wow, I didn't know it was that bad. Wow, how about that? That's how vehement the complaints were. And it wasn't just the guest lend. It was actually the folks who worked in retail to the part who just came mm. down on the Imagineers and it's like, you took out Figment. We make a half a million yeah. dollars a year off of just selling Figment. Yeah, I mean plus. imagine imagine you're uh, you're the executive for, you know, Epcot merchandising and your bonus, your performance bonus yeah. is now hamstrung because you've got a half million dollar hole. <sighs> 
to make up because because something you didn't control yep. got taken away from you, yeah. right? Then you just leave that job. You're like, I'm, you know, why why am I staying here? So this is the nightmare scenario. It, it needs to be fixed, but they need to wait till the Millennium Celebration is over, so the crowds die down. And it's like, okay, how do we fix this? And this now falls to Imagineer extraordinaire David Mumford, who has to figure out how to fix this almost impossibly broken attraction. And Len, in the third and final installment of this theory, we will talk about how Journey into Your Imagination was changed into Journey into Imagination with Figment, more to the point what the future may hold for this future world attraction, which may or may not key off of that Figment movie project that got announced earlier this month. Ooh, I love a good tease, Jim. I love a good tease. Yeah, I, I do what I can. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We've got a bunch of new Bandcamp exclusives available, including the one we recorded on the Disney Wish on the history of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. And we've just recorded part two of our History of Cars Land shows, which will be out next week. On next week's show, we're going to finish up this history of Journey into Imagination. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be featuring new Christmas tree decor, including ombre and giant pom-poms, for the opening weekend of the 2022 Ogle Bay Institute's Festival of Trees. On Saturday, November 12th at the Ogle Bay Institute Stifle Fine Arts Center on National Road in beautiful downtown Wheeling, West Virginia. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.